Welcome to Episode 5 of South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 10, Pumpkin Grounds, October 8, 2304. Jimmy was keeping one eye on the deck and the other on the fish finder. Tony was doing a good job, but sorting the catch was a tedious and seemingly unending task. Every so often, Casey would point out one of the finer points of the trade, and the catch was eventually sorted. The white fish down in the bunkers below, a few selected fish and trays on the deck, and the rest tossed back over the side. Casey set Tony to hosing down the deck and fixtures while she dressed a few larger fish, and when it was over, they came back and stood outside the wheelhouse door. Tony had a tired but satisfied grin on his face. That wasn't so bad, actually, he said. Casey grinned and said, wait till we get a big bag, then say that. A big bag? Tony asked. Yeah, Casey replied. That was just an appetizer. When the net comes up full, then we see how you like it. Jimmy did his best to control the smile at the look of forlorn despair on Tony's face. It'll be okay, Tony, he said. You'll be broken good before we have to deal with that. Season's almost over. Tony sighed. You're bound and determined, aren't you? He said with a half grin. Jimmy just shrugged and glanced across the instruments. You guys should grab something to eat. I want to haul back and about a stand, head back in. Trouble, Skip? Casey asked. Jimmy shook his head. Now, there's a front off to the west at about 200 kilometers. It's moving north and should go by us, but the end's going to brush over a bit. Might get a bit of a breeze, maybe a raindrop or two. It's just two hauls is enough for the first day. I want to break Tony in, not down. Tony laughed. Okay, I'll get the coffee on, he said, and headed for the forecastle with a wave. He was already moving more comfortably across the deck. Jimmy glanced at Casey. So uh, it looked like he did okay from here. She shrugged. He's willing enough, Skip, and catches on fast. I've shipped with a whole lot worse, and that's a fact. He's going to be sore tomorrow, Jimmy noted. Casey grinned. Yeah, well, he'll limber up fast. He's pretty wiry for an old guy. Hey, he's only three stand years older than me, Jimmy objected in jest. Casey grinned. Oh, you don't look that old, she said with a smirk. I wouldn't have pegged you at more than sixty. And then she laughed, and Jimmy was reminded of another girl a long time ago, and a long way from there. Not so much the way she looked, but the laugh. Uh, go on with you, get something to eat, he said with a grin. Save some of that snarkiness for the fish. She chuckled again, okay, Skip. You want anything? Yeah, a cup of coffee and a sandwich be good. Some of that sharp cheese and ham with mustard? She nodded, you got it, she said, and headed back across the deck. Jimmy's eyes watched her go, but in his mind it was another woman he saw. Sighing, he turned his attention back to his business and spotted a particularly dark spot spread across the bottom a few points to port. Grinning, he jinked the wheel and adjusted the course. Yeah, maybe Tony's going to see what a big bag is yet, he chortled to himself. A stand later, when the heavy bag slipped over the rail and onto the deck, it didn't look that much different from the one earlier. The bulk of the net and associated gear masked the size of the catch, but when Tony pulled the release line, the silvery mass started spilling onto the deck and kept spilling overflowing the bunker boards and sloshing back along the deck as far as the wheelhouse. Casey whooped in jubilation, and Tony just stared in disbelief. Jimmy stuck his head out the door and shouted, Now that's a good-sized bag, Tony. Tony laughed and made a rude hand gesture, but then they turned to and started securing the net cables and doors for the run back into the inlet. Jimmy smiled in satisfaction as he brought the boat around on a course heading homeward. The craft had settled into the water with the load that was aboard, and Jimmy was careful to put them on a heading where they wouldn't slosh too much while the weight of the fish was still up on deck. He punched up the autopilot and plotted a course to the outer marker, 
and then reached into the cubby behind his chair and pulled out his own boots. Like Tony's, they were brand new. His old boots had long since dried out, cracked, and been added to some plastisteel sludge pot. Tony looked up in surprise when Jimmy stepped out of the wheelhouse and shuffled through the pile of fish, pulling on a pair of work gloves of his own. Jimmy grinned back at him. I can't let you have all the fun, he said cheerfully. Casey chuckled evilly again, but moved over to make room for him. He leaned down to open a bunker hole into the starboard side and settled down to sort and stow the catch. The old, old habits surfaced in his hands, and in the way he leaned on the rail with one hip as he scooted the slippery fish across the deck and down into the hold without actually lifting each one up. Together, the three of them spent close to two stands clearing away the catch. When they finished, Jimmy stood and stretched his backs. Tony isn't the only one needs breaking in, he said aloud. Casey grinned. He's not the only one going to be sore tomorrow, either, she observed, to nobody in particular. Jimmy laughed and went back to the wheelhouse. As Casey and Tony finished washing down the deck and securing the running gear, Jimmy adjusted course and speed, pushing the throttles forward now that the cargo was secure below decks, and the engine under his feet took on a new tone as it pressed them toward home. After a few ticks, Casey and Tony came up out of the forecastle and brought coffee back to the wheelhouse. Casey brought the whole pot this time, and Tony had three empty mugs strung onto an index finger. They all wedged into the wheelhouse, Casey taking the stool by the nav plot, Tony propped in the chart room door. The engine hammered under their feet, pushing them across the water as if anxious to be home. The accumulated effort was already binding them together as crew. Jimmy couldn't help but see the ghosts of boats and crews long gone by the wayside, remembering the stanyards he and the old man spent fishing and ending each day with a quiet, and sometimes not so quiet, run back to port at the end of a long day at sea. That, of course, made him think of getting home at the end of the day and seeing her again. He didn't sigh, but he did still miss her. They drank their coffee and didn't talk much, not so much lost in their own thoughts as just decompressing from the previous ten stands. Casey spoke first. So what's her name? she asked, not quite shouting to be heard over the engine's racket. Jimmy, still half bemused by his memories of another time, was startled, but Tony just asked who. The boat, shippy, the boat. We can't keep calling her the boat. It ain't polite, she said with a grin. Jimmy smiled and said, I've been so tied up in getting ready to go, I hadn't really thought about it. Like every vessel in the Pirano fleet, the boat had a hull designator painted on the top of the wheelhouse roof and on either side of the deckhouse. By long tradition, all the boats had names as well. Nobody ever called their boat by the designator. How about Lizzie B., Tony suggested. That's my mother's name, Jimmy said. Yeah, I know, Tony grinned in the response. No, Jimmy said flatly. Casey laughed and suggested, Sea Sprite? Tony wrinkled his nose, too frou-frou. Frou-frou? Casey asked with a laugh in her voice. What the hell is frou-frou? Tony looked uncomfortable as Jimmy hid a smirk. Fussy, prissy, Tony said. You're not trying to say girly, are you, Tony? Casey asked with a frown. No, I think he's trying not to say girly, Jimmy pointed out. Tony flushed in embarrassment. How about Lady Day, he suggested, trying to change the subject. How about Mermaid, Casey offered with a grin. Taken, Tony replied. There's a mermaid over at Cheapskate. How about Jimmy's dream, he asked, with a nudge at Jimmy's shoulder. Jimmy snickered. More like Jimmy's nightmare, he replied. Nightmare's too scary, Casey said, but I kind of like to play on words with mare. They lapsed into silence for a while, savoring the coffee and thinking about names. Seahorse, Casey said. Two words. She's a workhorse, all right, and a sweet ride, too. She patted the rail in front of her as if really patting the flank of a horse. Seahorse. Tony repeated, letting it roll around in his mouth a little. I kind of like it. Seahorse, Jimmy said, trying the name for himself. He smiled at the sound of it. Is that the one you want, Casey? He asked. Seahorse. You're the skipper, skipper, she said. 
I'm asking you, he said seriously, but with a smile on the edge of his face. She looked at him curiously and then looked back out the window, over the deck and out to the horizon. She considered the inside of the wheelhouse and looked back at Tony, who merely watched her thinking about it with a bemused smile. She looked back at Jimmy then. Yes, I like seahorse. Seahorse it is then, Jimmy said with finality. About that time, the boat shouldered through a larger roller than normal, and it gave a little buck as it slid down the backside of the wave. Casey grabbed the rail and said, I think she likes it. They all laughed, and the seahorse surged through the afternoon sea toward port. Chapter 11, Calum's Cove, October 10, 2304. The silence woke Otto. He lay in bed for a moment before he remembered that his father and mother had gone out fishing, that he was on his own. A flash of exultation coursed through him, alone at last, and he jumped out of bed. It lasted until his feet hit the floor, and he remembered his father's warning the night before. There's a lot of eyes in the village, Otto. They'll all be watching you, he'd said. He hadn't threatened. He hadn't needed to. Otto still had hopes that this would lead to his being able to go out fishing with one or the other of his parents, and the last thing he wanted to do was mess it up. That left him with the problem of what to do with the day, but the answer was waiting on the kitchen table in the form of a note from his father. Collect driftwood for Welkies was scrawled large and neat on the pad. Under it was a hurried and catch something nice for dinner in his mother's hand. Otto smiled and decided that was enough to fill the day at least until mid-afternoon when the fleet would return. He poured himself a mug of grand apple juice and grabbed a muffin from the larder. He ate the muffin over the sink so he wouldn't have to clean the crumbs off the table and washed it down with cold juice. The first one tasted so good he decided to have a second, but in less time than he thought possible, he stepped out of the kitchen door and headed for the workshop. Driftwood first, he thought, and then I can fish until the boats come in. He got a thrill from the idea of watching for his folks to return from the vantage of Bentley's head. The workshop was where his father kept what Otto thought of as the shaman stuff. It was a combination woodworking shop, herb shop, and den. It always smelled of the dried plants hung on the overhead, a kind of spicy, musty smell, and something else that he came to believe was his father's odor. It was similar to the scent on the inside of his father's winter jackets, but not something Otto was really aware of, even when his father was in the room, unless he stepped into the workshop. It was a curiosity at times that something so distinct should have such a localized presence. Just inside the door, hung on a peg, was an old canvas shoulder bag. It was stained and ratty-looking in places, but it was what his father used to collect driftwood for carving Welkies. Welkies were the small animal carvings inlaid with shell or bone. Tradition held that the Welkies were spirit guides for people who needed help, strength, or guidance. Otto wore a seabird on a leather thong around his neck that was carved by his grandfather before Otto had been born. The leather had been lovingly replaced a multitude of times, and the wood had taken on a rich sheen from being against Otto's skin for stanier upon stanier. The wooden shell came from the beach, and his father would spend at least part of every day working on carving the small pieces. Otto's eyes strayed to the workbench where several of his father's figures were resting, waiting to find their owners, if tradition were correct. More were in various states of carving and inlay, waiting for his father to free them. When much younger, Otto had watched his father working with wood and shell, but was never able to discern how the shapes were hidden, nor really what freed meant. The resulting work was pleasing to look at, and they all felt pretty good in his hand, but the whole concept of spirit guide was something that even a young man of thirteen staniers had trouble grasping. 
His boyish mind made it into something like guardian angel. Still, he was the shaman's son and would be shaman himself one day, if all the plans laid out for him came to fruition, so he shouldered the bag and closed the door carefully behind him as he left. His father's footsteps had worn an easily followed trail from the workshop to Sandy Long. As he followed, literally, in his father's footsteps, Otto let his mind drift back along the times he'd walked with his father on this very errand. He realized suddenly, with a certain horror, that he'd never contributed a single bit of wood or shell to the process before, and now he was supposed to collect a bagful and still leave time to fish. He fought down a moment of panic. Not bag full, he murmured himself. Just a few pieces, like father would. In his mind's eye, he could see his father striding along the beach, stooping to pick up a bit of this or that, examining it in his hands, turning it this way and that. Sometimes he'd toss it aside, and other times reach down, slide it into the bag, the very bag that flapped on Otto's own back right now. Long ago, he'd asked, What makes you keep some and throw others away? His father shrugged. I don't know, he said. Sometimes I can see how the Welkie is in the wood, and other times it's just a pretty piece of shell, and sometimes, he said with a sort of embarrassed grin, I just need a piece of wood, and it's the right size and shape. Otto picked his way down from the headland and started along the beach, his feet carrying him where they would along the strand. Here, Welkie, Welkie, he called softly, almost under his breath. Come out, come out, wherever you are. He grinned to himself and stooped to pick up a long, straight piece of driftwood with an interesting knot on the end. He brushed the loose sand off it and started to use it as a walking staff. The butt end was useful for stirring through the piles of dried weed and upending the odd pile of twigs. Almost immediately, his eye was caught by a bit of rich purple shell in the sand. When he picked it up, the sunlight glinted off it, and a moistened thumb polished the smooth inner surface, revealing a pleasing pattern to the layers of calcium carbonate. Smiling, he tucked the shell into his bag and kept walking. Every so often he'd pick up a small bit of wood. He was looking particularly for those that were smaller than his hand. Something with a shape or a knot in it, a weathered hole or a twisted bit of rack. Anything that would make it more than just a piece of weathered wood. He was surprised at how much there was to see and look at when he really took the time to see. He picked up several likely-looking bits of wood and, undecided, thrust them into the bag. He wasn't really sure what he was supposed to be looking at, and worst case, they'd make nice kindling in the small wood-fired stove at the workshop. He was completely engrossed in the task of looking at wood and was startled when he looked down to see a tiny dolphin swimming across the sand. He jumped and blinked and saw that it was just a bit of curved stick. He pulled it out of the sand and brushed it off, but he didn't see the dolphin in it all, though he thought he just might see how somebody with a blade and some sandpaper could take a bit of wood off here and there, and that might make a realistic dolphin shape. That pleased him immensely, and he tucked the bit of wood safely into the bag with the rest. Several more times over the course of the next two stands, Otto would spot something out of the corner of his eye, or just beside a piece of wood that he was reaching for, or in one instance clunked with the heel of the walking stick. He was never sure what he was seeing, but impressions of seals, deer, fish, and birds were all present. Some he didn't know what they were. Was that a cat? Or some kind of odd-shaped fox? Was it a wolf? A dog? A hyena? He didn't always know, but he collected those pieces along with a lot of other pieces as he walked. After a couple of stands of walking up the beach, he stood and looked back at his meandering footprints. The bag on his back wasn't flapping anymore. He'd collected much more in the line of wood and shell than he'd expected to. He'd come to the place on Sandy Long where a series of large flat rocks were arranged in a crescent, each about a meter across and roughly rectangular. 
They looked for all the world like some sort of blunt teeth in the jaw of sand. Normally, he and his father would stop here for a break before heading back, so he knew he'd come far enough. It would take another stand to get back to the house, but he was in no hurry and the day was quite fine. He knew it would eat into his fishing time, but the pull of the relatively unexplored beach drew him on. As he continued to walk, he found more and more pieces that looked like animals to him, and many bits of shell and even some bone. At one point, he found a seabird's primary feather and stuck it into a crack in the wood at the head of his walking stick. As the sun got up higher in the sky, though, he began to regret having left the house without a hat, so he turned back toward the house and, retracing his path, if not his steps, discovered still more bits of this and that. Some went into the bag. Some found its way as decoration for the staff. A colorful feather, some large scales, a bit of colored twine. Otto found himself almost disappointed when he came to the end of the beach and the trail back to the cottage. In a couple of ticks, he was back at his father's workshop, and he placed the bag carefully on the end of the workbench. He was almost startled to discover that he still had his walking stick. He'd become so used to it. Shrugging, he took it with him to the house, where he stood beside the kitchen door before entering. He washed up a bit and made himself a sandwich or two of cold meat and too much mayonnaise. He washed it down with more juice and then filled the travel bottle with fresh water to take with him. He rummaged around until he found a broad-brimmed hat. Then, grabbing the hand-line tote, he jammed the hat on his head and left the cottage again. As he walked down the lane, he was almost startled to discover that he'd retrieved his walking stick from beside the door, but decided it gave him an air of mystery and kept it as he strode down the lane out onto the point and then settled down for an afternoon of fishing. As he stepped onto what he'd come to think of as his rock, he eyed the water dubiously. The tide was well out and there was a lot less water right where he normally would fish. He leaned on his staff and scanned the water close to the rocks, having a much more realistic idea of how far he could throw a line than in his first few attempts. Something nice for dinner, huh? he said to himself, recalling his mother's note. What would be nice for dinner? As his eyes skipped across the wavelets, a flash of silver deep in the water caught his eye. As he tried to focus on it, it disappeared, but he could see that the water in that spot, just in front of the next rock over, was a bit different, deeper perhaps. He cocked his head and could see that there was actually a hole there under the water. Shrugging, he climbed down between the rocks, found some bait in the rockweed, and then clambered up onto the next rock. He wedged his staff into the crack so it stood up in the breeze, feathers flapping, and proceeded to bait up the handline. Without getting too close to the edge, he tossed the baited hook over the rim and let it fall until it struck bottom. He didn't have long to wait before the line started jumping, and he burned his fingers trying to keep it from spooling all away. He managed to get his hands off the twine and onto the frame without dropping both of them, and proceeded to wrestle with what felt like a large dog pulling on the other end. Before long, he realized... Getting the fish, whatever it was, up out of the water and onto the rock might be problematic. His arms were already getting tired, and he wasn't sure that the line would hold, so he slipped down between the two rocks where the weed disappeared under the waves, and on that slippery footing proceeded to wrestle his catch ashore. In the end, it didn't look like that much, laying there on the weed. Otto gave thanks, though, because he'd landed a small abo. It wasn't more than five kilos, but compared to the half-kilo dace he'd managed in his prior expeditions, this was a real catch. He killed the fish quickly and dressed it there on the weed. His knife nicked his thumb and he stood, shook his hand in reflex before he realized what he'd done. It was a minor cut, so he ignored it and went back to work, preparing his catch to take home. He was reminded of it somewhat forcefully when he knelt to rinse the gore from his hands and knife when the salty water flushed through the small wound and stung him. Wincing, he shook his hands dry, and reckoned it a small price to pay for so fine a catch. Carefully, he packed up the tote, retrieved his staff from the crack in the rock, 
and hefting the fish by the gill plate, headed back to the house, satisfied that he'd accomplished his chores for the first day. Rachel was feeling tired but satisfied as she trudged back to the house after her first day at sea in almost fifteen stanniers. The muscles she seldom used while working the planet net were complaining about the abuse, but the feeling of a good day's work behind her made the pain a minor inconvenience, even a badge of honor. It had been a shakedown cruise for the Tiggy Ann, as well as her new skipper mate and crew. One of the three new side trawlers from the inlet, Tiggy Ann performed well. George Abel was a steady skipper, having been a mate with Jane Gill for Stanyers. Millie Malone moved over from the Nereid to make room for Susan Marston, and she and Rachel had gotten along famously all day. With a new boat and a new crew, George had called it an early day and headed back after only a two-stand second trawl. Luck had been in their favor in spite of that, and the short haul netted a very nice catch. As she approached the house, she noticed a stick leaning against the wall beside the door, but didn't think much of it until she noted the rusty stains on the wood, near where a hand might have held it. Otto, she called, as she entered the house through the kitchen door. Otto looked up from the sink where he'd been rinsing his catch and smiled. Well, hi, Mom. Welcome home. Look what I caught. He stepped back to reveal the large fish in the sink. Are you okay, she asked, without even looking. Yeah, he said, confusion in his face. What's up? Well, it looks like blood on this stick out here. Did you hurt yourself? she asked again. He looked confused for a moment before he caught up to the cause of his mother's concern. Oh, yeah, I nicked my thumb cleaning the fish, he said, holding up his thumb. It bled like anything. When I got back, I put antibiotic on it and wrapped it. That's nothing, really. His mother looked at the bandage job and then looked at the sink, and her jaw dropped. Where'd you get an abo? she cried. Out on Bentley Head, right where you said the fish, he said proudly. You said catch something nice for dinner. Well, you certainly did that, she replied. Abo steaks tonight. Otto grinned, pleased. Did you get wood for Welkies? she asked him, almost an afterthought. Oh, yeah, he nodded. I did that first. Got a big bag of stuff. It's out in Father's shop, he assured her. Well, she said, you may as well learn how to fix dinner. It'll be a big help, and if you're going to keep bringing in fish like this beauty, you may as well learn how to prepare them. For the next half of Stan, he and his mother worked through the finer points of finny anatomy, carving the dense able flesh into steaks of a uniform size and thickness. She showed him how to make a simple seasoning mix to sprinkle on the surfaces, and they set the steaks aside to rest. Afterwards, she took him out to the small garden in the back, and they dug some new potatoes from one of the hills and pulled a sweet onion for seasoning. The fall crop of spanoose was lush and green, so they picked a mess of greens to go with the steaks. They spotted Richard trudging up the road from the village as they turned to re-enter the kitchen. His face was very pink from fresh sunburn, and his clothes looked like he'd been sleeping in a pile of fish guts, but he had an uncharacteristically broad, if tired, smile on his face as he trudged along. Rachel and Otto waved to him and took their bounty into the kitchen, so they missed the curious look Richard gave the stick that was standing beside the back door. Otto scrubbed the potatoes while Rachel greeted her husband warmly with a long hug and a lingering kiss. He smiled to himself at the display of affection it occurred to him that he hadn't really observed it for a long time, and his smile reached his mouth. Otto caught an abo at the point today, hon. We've got abo steaks for dinner. He grinned. Excellent, Otto. I'm hungry enough to eat a whole one by myself. I hope it was big enough. He whistled in appreciation at the stack of abo steaks prepared on the sideboard and nodded his approval. All right, that looks like plenty, even for me. So how was it, father? Otto blurted, unable to stand it any more. How was what? his father asked. Fishing? He gestured to his filthy, and if truth were told, smelly, clothing. How do you think? Long, boring waits between back-breaking labor. The broad grin belied his true feelings. So you're going to stay home tomorrow? Rachel teased him. He laughed, a deep, joyful sound, and said, Not on your life. When they'd all had a good laugh, he asked, So did you get the wood I asked for, Otto? Yes, father, I almost filled your collection bag. It's beside the bench in your shop. 
Impressive, he said. All good, Welkies. Otto finished washing the potatoes, turned to rest his backside against the counter while he dried his hands on a towel and shrugged. I don't know. Some are, I think. Some's just firewood, probably, he replied. His father's face took on a serious look as he examined his son. You're serious? You filled my bag. Otto shrugged again. Not entirely, but I got a lot. Well, very good then, his father replied. I really only expected you to bring back a few bits, but if you manage to find that many, I'm impressed. The praise from his father felt very good, and Otto smiled. Well, I think we better cook some fish. You're not the only one who's hungry. Richard lit the small grill on the back porch, while Rachel and Otto prepared potatoes and greens. His mother even whipped up a batch of biscuits and slipped a gooseberry cobbler into the oven to bake while they ate. Otto smiled as they cleaned up after dinner, and he didn't see the speculative looks being sent his way. Thanks for listening to South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. The music is from Wish by Rafael Garcia Perdigon. Available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.org/golden. <laughs>